Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and we are continuing our denominational tradition series. And as you can see, I'm not alone. I'm joined by Jacob. Jacob, how are you doing? Good. How are you, sir? I'm very good, and I'm very glad to have you on again. For those who don't know Jacob, he's been on the channel before. He's a dear friend of mine. We've known each other for quite some time. Well, quite some time, relatively speaking, given the online world. But uh, if you're interested, check out Jacob's other episode down below. I'll have a uh, description link kind of thing like that. And you can see what's going on with Jacob. But right now we're going to dive in and we're going to maybe take a step back. I think last time we got into some of the nitty gritty with uh, uh, worship and the book, uh, book of Common Prayer and that kind of stuff. This time we're, we're doing an overview of what Anglicanism is and what's going on inside an Anglican church and all that good and wonderful stuff. But before we get there, Jacob, I want you to just let people know who you are, what you're about, and what kind of stuff you got going on. Well, hi, my name is Jacob Hootman. I am a, a seminarian in Fort Worth, Texas, in the Anglican Church in North America. Um, I've also served for the past three years on the liturgy task force of the Anglican Church in North America. Um, in a variety of sort of worship roles, worship planning, and that sort of thing for the for the national church. Hmm. Yeah, and I can say it since Jacob won't say it. He is probably one of the smartest guys I know. He is incredibly active, and he know so he, he he's a humble man as well as you can see here. But he is someone. He's the he's the up and comer in the Anglican world, and he's got a lot going on there. And we look forward to hearing more in the future about different. Uh, moves you take, steps and places of ministry you get into, I'm sure God will do wonderful things through you for not just the Anglican church, but also for the church as a whole. So Jacob, that's what you're doing right now. We're going to let you speak, but uh, maybe I think the foundational question people would have when it comes to Anglicanism is, well, what is it? So we, we can hear the word and we know it has something to do with England, but it's also a church. So if you could just lay it out for us, what what is an Anglican? Yeah. So Anglicanism is a denominational tradition, I guess is the best way I could put it. It's not really one solid, single hierarchical entity hmm. um, like you would have with maybe the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. It's, it's more of a general tradition. Hmm. Um, and the, the best way I could describe it is Protest is in a form of Protestantism that is governed by bishops. Hmm. Um, if you're in the United States, a lot of Anglicans go by Episcopalian, which comes from the Greek word episkopos, meaning overseer, bishop. Um, so really, when it comes down to it, Anglicanism is a form of Protestantism governed by bishops and usually has a set of traditions going back to the ancient church of England. Mm. Um, in England, during the Reformation, um, whereas in places like maybe Switzerland or Germany, the, the Reformation tended to be a little more radical. The Reformation in England was fairly conservative. And so a number of the trappings, I guess I would say, of Roman Catholicism were retained. And some of the more governmental features, such as rule by bishops, was maintained. But um, the, the core principles of the, of the Reformation were instituted throughout. Things mm. like, you know, the five sola, um, worship in English, that sort of thing. So right. Anglicanism is the is the heir of those sort of traditions um, in England. Hmm. So that that that's perfect. And I think if I could identify two things, I hope people heard is first of all, Protestant Reformation. It comes from that same 
world of what was going on. We had a, a Lutheran on talking about what was happening in Germany and uh, Alexander, a Dutch reform guy in, in Switzerland. So it's part of that same movement. But as, as you said, Anglicanism, when it comes to what it looked like and how it played out, there are some maybe historical nuances or just ways thing happened where it was a more conservative movement in the sense that it retained a lot more of the things or the outward things that we would think of and associate perhaps with the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, I know a lot of my listeners will be familiar with the Roman Catholic Church and maybe were members at one point, maybe are today, but uh, things like bishops above uh, the church, those are there. And I think a, a lot of the times we might see uh, Anglican clergy in a lot of places and recognize they're wearing things we might associate with Roman Catholics and, and things like that. But as you said, thoroughly Protestant when it comes to the solas, which is, of course, a big point of unity between Anglicans and a lot of other Protestant groups and Christian groups out there. So, Jacob, that, that's very helpful. And I, I think moving from there, thinking maybe a little bit more about the history, we have the Reformation, which is where the Anglican Church starts, and it's really in England, but eventually it's now a global body. But uh, in between the Reformation and getting to it where it is today, I'm sure there was a lot going on in terms of different movements and different figures and all sorts of stuff. And I know this is a conversation, I didn't really prep you on this, but maybe just off the top of your head, what are sort of the big movements or streams or things within Anglicanism in between the Reformation and where we get to today that you would say are influential in Anglicanism? Absolutely. So one of the key ones that comes to mind, and maybe this is more relevant for, for the audience that's listening here, especially is the Puritan movement was born out of the Anglican Church um, and really was a desire, I think, to um, make the Anglican Church something a, a little more akin to what was going on on the continent, sort of get rid of those trappings or conservative elements that we had retained from Roman Catholicism. Conversely, there was another movement, roughly at the same time, maybe a little earlier, called the Laudians, which emphasized a little heavier those traditional um, sort of especially liturgical elements um, in the Church of England. Hmm. Um, yeah, Laud Laudian. So sorry, uh, just backing that up a bit. So the, the Puritans, uh, when it comes to the name, as, as I think most people are aware, there's the pure in there. And then the Laudians, I think uh, a lot of time we might hear the word and we think Laudian, like we laud people, we praise people, applaud. But uh, as I recall, it's named after a figure there. And is that figure, I, it I believe it's Archbishop. Was Archbishop, he Archbishop William Laud. So okay. he was Archbishop of Canterbury under Charles I mm. for some time. And he he's a fairly controversial figure, right. namely for, for political reasons. In terms of his doctrine, he's, you know, he, he's a controversial guy, but really, really he, he's, he made some poor political decisions. Okay. Of course, that was the 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 model of the day. Religious figures, regardless of denomination, wielded a great deal of political authority, and it being the early modern era, he used it poorly, and I think he he paid the price for it. But mm. um, so th those those were the sort of two immediately post Reformation factions, right? You could say within the Anglican Church. Of course, the Puritans eventually left the Church of England and sometimes physically left the Church of England, mm. uh, coming to the New World and setting up churches in, in New England and um, later in Canada. Right. Yeah. Um, the Laudians sort of retained this preeminent position. They, a lot of their membership was found among the bishops who 
managed the church. Um, eventually, as time went on, there was a great deal of concern, especially among conservative high church, which is mm. what we would call it, essentially more uh, Catholic clergy within the, the Church of England. I would say Catholic with a little c. Right. Um, that the Church of England had sort of fallen into a, a rot, that there mm. was, it was um, almost dormant. There wasn't a lot of gospel zeal. And so out of this comes two movements only about 40 years apart. The Methodists right. and later the Anglo-Catholics. Um, the Methodists, of course, being founded by John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley remained a staunch Anglican throughout his whole life and died mm. an Anglican priest, uh, as did his brother. And they were very focused on sort of a renewal of the spirit within the Church of England and, and extending that throughout. Um, ordaining ministers within the U.S., the, the whole nine yards. Anglo-Catholicism sort of picked up where he left off about 50 years later um, and took the sort of high church direction a little more sharply towards Rome. Right. Um, and it, it's, they, they've really left their mark. And I, I would say that Anglicanism within the last hundred years has really been in the shadow of Anglo-Catholicism um, in terms of the, the effect that the movement left on the denomination. Right. Things that were sort of um, taboo before, more Catholic things are now widely acceptable. Things like incense, candles, vestments, mm. which were sort of seen as eccentric or sometimes even illegal before oh. are now considered fairly normal in most Anglican churches. Um, so they certainly took it in a more Catholic direction, but most of the clergy took the worship maybe in a more Catholic direction or the, the trappings, right? But they maintained that sort of normal middle of the road conservative Protestant theology. Right. And Jacob, I'm glad you outlined a few of those things. And the, the reason why I think it's important to draw attention perhaps to some of those names is, uh, as it was mentioned in a, a previous interview, where when we're thinking of within denominations or traditions, we'll often speak of conservatives and liberals, and we'll mm -hmm. typically have an idea of what that means. But it really sounds like with Anglicanism, as you're looking at it, you have to employ terms like uh, that's Catholic in a little in a little C kind of sense, and you have an idea of what that means. You'll get into high church and, of course, low church on the other side, where I think a critical thing for other Protestants and especially evangelicals looking into Anglicanism is to recognize there could be a different language to describe theological disagreements, and you could have two people on polar opposite kind of camps in Anglicanism, but they can share a foundational theology while having different expressions and sometimes it's rooted in a in a puritan movement we're going to get pure like the continent and uh, of course from their perspective but then it's one movement named after an archbishop who had a certain persuasion or a certain direction and then later on you have methodists and of course with uh, uh people on this channel of course evangelical history shares some of this uh, appreciation where it it's the root word is method and it gets into what they were doing in the holy club and that kind of stuff but then anglo-catholicism where that that of course might trip people up is that english catholicism no it's a movement within the church of england so i think that people might not remember all this but i think that's a critical point as we're thinking about anglicans and their history and their identity they have a particular history that's rooted in the shared confession or tradition or however we want to phrase it 
but there are different movements with different terms. And it's worth it if we're going to engage with Anglicanism or think about it to be aware of some of those terms and just uh, allow other people to define themselves rather than lumping them into, oh, conservatives and liberals as it it might be easier for a conversation, but it misses a lot of the the different things there. Yeah. So maybe uh, we talked about these different streams in history, but let's maybe zoom in a little bit you still have something called Anglicanism at the end of the day, where you have all these different movements and different groups pulling in different directions. And it sounds like mostly on, I I guess we could say the visuals or the externals and things like that. But there is, as we said, an Anglican body out there, maybe in different denominations or traditions. But uh, maybe this is a hard question with everything going on. And of course, there's a lot going on. But what draws all these different movements and different uh, streams together into one Anglican identity? What's the unifying uh, thing there? Well, the unifying thing I would say among these, there's a variety of Anglican church bodies and denominations that have existed, especially since the 1970s when there was a a considerable fracture in the Anglican world. the main thing that draws most Anglicans together is we share a common prayer. We share common worship for the most part. Um, and it used to be this used to be more true maybe 70 years ago than it is now. But you could go into any Anglican church on the planet, and I would be willing to bet that in the local language they are saying something that would be vaguely recognizable to any Anglican that you went to their church 500 years ago. Um, or I guess a little under 500 years ago, we're not quite there yet. But the, the main thing that draws most Anglicans together is we, we use a common worship material called the Book of Common Prayer. And it, the first Book of Common Prayer was written in 1549, and it has sort of evolved since then. There are a variety of different editions. But the key thing here is that it, rather than Anglicans having a confession like you know, Reformed Baptists might, or or any other denomination for that matter, we our common confession is found in our worship. Hmm. So the Book of Common Prayer illuminates, for the most part, the way that we might understand Scripture, and where we, as the Church, have decided, you know, seeing this might contradict Scripture, we correct the prayer book to match that. But for the most part, the, the use of our prayer book sort of fleshes out some of our theology. Uh, rather than us having a point-by-point list of we believe this on this we believe this on this right Um, in the period prior to the anglo-catholic movement so up until about the 1850s there was a confessional document in anglicanism and it's still fairly important for a majority of anglicans called the 39 articles of religion um, which is a more conventional confessional document right yeah, it doesn't really pack the same punch that it used to, at least authoritatively wise. Most Anglicans will still consult it, and it still certainly informs our tradition. But we've, um, I don't want to say moved past it, but we've expanded the borders a little bit, I would say. Right. And may, maybe thinking about that for a bit, and we'll get into different uh, churches and denominations in a moment where, as you mentioned, there is a diversity out there. And as I understand it, even to this day, things look pretty different in England than it would in North America, which is your Mm -hmm. context. So maybe we'll get into that in a moment. But I think it's worth, especially 
uh, evangelical Baptist, which is I'm an evangelical Baptist. I imagine a lot of my listeners are where, as you said, we're more familiar when it comes to identifying a tradition, we'll immediately think of a statement of faith. So in the more confessionally reformed circles, that would be our London Baptist confessions or in Presbyterian circles, they'll have the Westminster at my church and many other Baptist churches like mine. Uh, we have a statement of faith that's shared across a fellowship. And it sounds like that would be more familiar with or similar to the 39 articles where point by point, we believe this, that, and this. And that's how we unify. And you mentioned Anglicans do have that in a sense. It's not perhaps super popular today as it once was or as much of a enforced kind of, oh, you broke away from that, you're, you're in big trouble. But it sounds like more critically or more historically, however we want to phrase it, it's using this prayer book as a unifying, almost doctrinal standard through the mm -hmm. worship that the church does. I think that's a pretty, at least I, I'm, I'm a bit familiar with the, the Book of Common Prayer. I've read through it and I've enjoyed it. But I think for a lot of Baptists hearing that, that is a hard thing to imagine, that your unifying document would be uh, a book that contains prayers and liturgies and how to do services or what to say at certain times. So maybe uh, th this might be, again, a difficult one. I don't mean it to be, but uh, is there a rationale behind such a book being such a unifying thing for Anglicans? I keep saying thing, but unifying really, I, I guess, uh, like emphasis or, or point of, of unity around a book of prayer rather than a book of doctrine. What, what's the thought process there? Well, there's the, the old the old sort of aphorism, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. Mm. So what we pray is what we believe. And what we believe is what we pray. Right. Um, and the idea essentially is, you know, praying in this rhythm. The, the, the prayer book is set up liturgically over the course of a year, essentially, right? The liturgical year. Um, and... You, you sort of go in these rhythms day in and day out, morning and evening prayer, your, your main service on Sunday, whether that be Holy Communion or morning prayer, you sort of get into these rhythms and you repeat things. For example, on Sunday, we repeat the, the sort of ancient confession of the Christian church, the Nicene Creed, right? again and again and again, every Sunday. And we read different parts of scripture every Sunday. So the idea is that as we engage with the ancient tradition of the church, right? In, in our engagement, we will begin to sort of internalize some of those, those truths. When we read scripture over and over and over again, right? If you read scripture, I, I say scripture, if you read the whole of the Bible once every year, all the way through, a little bit every day, over and over and over again, you would start to internalize bits of scripture that you might not otherwise it'll mm. come to your mind right right and that's that's essentially the idea here the book of common prayer and it sounds like it's a bunch of stuff that we've made up and it really isn't the the book of common prayer is scripture that we have rearranged for worship right right and made convenient for worship and that's all it is it's it's a way of exposing the christian to scripture over and over and over again and ordering our worship so that we can praise God, maybe just that little bit more perfect, even though we know we can't get there in this life. Hmm. We, we can try our best. Right. And uh, I'll, I'll say it again. I've been saying it every interview where this isn't a debate show. This is a learning show. So, of course, as a Baptist and you as an Anglican, we would disagree on the nature of prayer books. But I think that's worth people 
understanding and appre- I think appreciating is the right word here where uh, to, for me, a Baptist listening to this, and I can imagine other Baptists listening, this sounds like, oh, that's really weird. Like, why, why are you doing things like that? Like, what, why, why have this book? Why be committed to the same thing every week? I think a classic critique from Baptists or Pentecostals might be, oh, it, it must get stale. But I think when you phrase it like reading the Bible through every year, which is a major thing that I grew up with in my evangelical Baptist world, and you say, hey, that's sort of along the same lines of what we're doing with this prayer book, which is largely scripture rearranged for worship services and all sorts of things like that. I think that's where we begin to see, oh, there, there is a rhyme and reason to what's going on here. And it is fleshed out historically where, as you said, it's thought through, it's developed, and it is subject to scripture where it, it might not practically change because you you believe it, but it is, it is supposed to be under scripture, but it's something that you can unify where what you pray is what you believe and what you believe is what you pray. So while for us listening today, you might be Baptist and you're going, well, that's weird. That's confusing. I think what hopefully you took away from that is that this is scripturally informed and it's done with a reason, the same reason why if you're a Baptist parent, you might encourage your kid to get on a Bible plan to read through the Bible in a year. It's the same sort of mentality, but in the context of a broader tradition and a broader church family and what they do there. So Jacob, thank you for going through that. And of course, if people are interested, this is the Book of Common Prayer. This uh, is one of Jacob's things. He is all about it. He is working on it. And we might get into it a bit later, but uh, I'm sure Jacob will have some recommended reading. I Well, I hope so that we can put in the description later. And if you're interested, please take a look. This is probably one of those big dividing lines, what separates uh, Baptists and Anglicans. It probably is this sense of how do we approach worship and the church uh, in a broader ecclesiological sense. But We'll, we'll leave it there for now. We could get in deeper. We have gotten in deeper in previous episodes, so check that out. But right now, you mentioned there's all those different streams. They're connected around a prayer book, but there's, uh, as we know, and as people I'm sure are aware, when it comes to Anglicanism, especially in North America, there isn't one unified Anglican church that every single Anglican is a part of. Just like other denominations, uh, it's true for Anglicans where they have different uh, doctrinal splits that happened in their history. So Jacob, why don't you just take us through and explain to us, I could speak in my context here in Southern Ontario and Canada, that when people think Anglican, they think Anglican Church of Canada, they might not be aware that there there's other options or other traditions out there. So why don't you just let us know North America, I, I, I would assume is a place you're able to talk about a bit more than what's going on in England. But let, let us know, what, what's the denominational landscape looking like? Wh- who are these people who say they're Anglicans? So within North America, there's really three large, th- three main groups hmm. of, of Anglicans. Um, you mentioned the Anglican Church in Canada. That yeah. would be part of sort of the, uh, the historically Anglican group, which has the institutional continuity, whole nine yards. It's the original sort of not denomination, as well as the Episcopal Church in the United States. Both of those are, uh, I guess, the two big dogs, so to speak. Um, They are fairly large tent organizations. There are liberal wings. There are conservative wings um, in the more broader liberal conservative sense. Right. Um, They generally, I guess, would be considered mainline denominations. Mm. The second largest group would be the realignment Anglicans, also known as the GAFCON Anglicans. Uh, Within North America, that would be the Anglican Church in North America, uh, who is... That's the denomination of which I'm a part. 
right. um, which definitely leans more conservative on most issues mm. and also tends to lean more evangelical on a lot of issues. Right. Um, whereas in the Anglican Church in Canada and the Episcopal Church, you could clearly identify it with the mainline sort of stream of Protestantism. The ACNA has, well, it does have mainline wings and Anglo-Catholic wings, and the area I'm in is thoroughly Anglo-Catholic. Right. Um, a great deal of ACNA members are self-described evangelicals. And when you went, when you go to a service on Sunday, it's this sort of strange fusion between prayer book services, which I've talked about, which sometimes are a little more Catholic, and praise bands and things that you would find in maybe a, a normal evangelical church on a Sunday. Right. Um, and it's sort of this odd marriage between the two. And and it, from what I've seen, it works out. It's it's not everybody's cup of tea, but mm. <laughs> it's certainly a, a, a part of our, our tradition now. Excuse me. The third group of Anglicans is the continuing Anglicans. This group I would identify as very conservative and in general, very Anglo-Catholic. Um, they tend to be a little more insular, though that has changed in the last four years. And they're, among Anglicans, they are doing the best at trying to get the gang back together, so to speak. Um, in the past few years, they, they have divided quite a bit into a number of smaller continuing churches. But in the last few years, they've sort of reassembled themselves into one single continuing church body, which is something that I commend them for. Mm -hmm. um, nice. it, it's very, it's clearly the, the work of, of Christ, you know, it's Christ at work here. Right. Um, in, in unifying his church. Mm. Uh, but those are the three main groups of Anglicanism in the U.S. Okay, so I got a number of follow-up questions there, and hopefully it won't get too tricky, but people keep in mind, those are the three groups. You have the, the big dogs in the uh, Anglican Church of Canada and the Episcopal Church in the United States. Then you have, I believe, what you called the realignment Anglicans. That's the ACNA. And in Canada, I believe the big one is the Anglican, Anglican Network. Network in Canada. Okay, Anglican Network Which is Network still a part of the ACNA. Right, so that, and that's one. And then the continuing continuing Anglicans, and they're more Anglo-Catholic, conservative, but also coming back together. So people keep those three in mind as I come with a, a few follow-up questions. Looking at that first group, I suppose, the, the big dogs, the Anglican Church of Canada and the Episcopal Church United States. So I, I attend an Anglican Church of Canada college, lots of great people there. I, I attend what is a, an evangelical Anglican college in that world. So that's always the interesting part. I think people need to understand when it's even approaching these three different groups within those groups, you still have those different wings there. And that's present all the way. When we say mainline, we're really talking general trend here, as I understand it. While within there, you do get some yeah. really conservative figures in certain wings who stay there on certain principles or convictions. And then of mm -hmm. course, uh, people, well, in Toronto, we know that you'll, you'll get some that they're full on affirming and uh, they're all about the social justice, though. So people know that the image that I'm trying to draw here. So you get a, a full spread. So maybe my question for you is, uh, what what do you and this isn't meant to cause a debate or spark a debate or get you in any sort of trouble. But when you think of these larger bodies, and you appreciate their history, and their standing in these countries, and you're in the ACNA, which is a newer body, how would you understand, I guess, the relationship between the, I guess, the main line, been here a long time, and these other two more recent additions? How, how do they relate to each other? Um, well, 
I would say that for the most part, they, they're, at, at least between the realignment Anglicans and the continuing Anglicans, relations have been fairly good. Okay. Um, continuing Anglicans left the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in Canada in the mid to late 70s. Mm. Um, the ACNA and the realignment Anglicans, for the most part, left during the early 2000s, culminating in about 2008 and 2009. Right. The Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in Canada has sort of an ambivalent relationship with the other two bodies, whereas realignment and continuing Anglicans, for the most part, get along. Um, we, we've got sort of a rivalry, I guess, a, a sibling rivalry, I would say, you know, where we make fun of them for being old fuddy-duddies and they think we're, you know, snake belly low Baptists. You're right. And of course, neither is true. <laughs> yeah. But um, that, I guess I, I would say that's sort of the, the base relations. And I just have to say, I, I have a great deal of respect for the people in the Episcopal Church. Mm. Um, and I know that I've got friends over there. There's, uh, the, the church in my area is ACNA. Right. That's functionally the reason I joined the ACNA instead of the Episcopal Church is because I didn't know there was a difference when I first joined and I joined the ACNA. Mm. So um, in a lot of places, it's like that. In some places, it's not where there's a, you know, and there's a, there was a, the split between the ACNA and the Episcopal Church, especially here in Fort Worth, was fairly messy. Mm. Um, there's a, in a town near me called Arlington, there are two St. Mark's Church, Church of St. Mark about a block down from each other. Oh. One is Episcopal, one is Anglican, and they both used to be the same congregation. Oh, I and see. And there are a number of those like that, which is, it's very sad. Mm. But, right. Um, yeah, so I, I could say, like, th those are the stories that might make it on to the news. So I, I know maybe it was the Fort Worth one, but also I think in one of the Carolinas, can't remember which one, that there was a, a messy case about property and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's what makes the news. But what might not make the news is, as you said, in some places, like, these people are still working together. They're mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of the times they're willing to speak to one in, one another. And I think perhaps I happen to go to an evangelical Anglican Church of Canada College. And so that's been more my experience where uh, ACNA people come without any issue and they're very mm -hmm. much we're, we're brothers and sisters here. So I think that that's another point of nuance people need to hear where we might think, oh, big body and the split away, they must hate each other. And while there might be some issues and legal battles and some really sad cases, I think those are the ones that we're more likely to hear. And that's because they are messy and messy gets news. But then there are also some places where you could say, hey, there are opportunities for dialogue. And hey, people are talking about how do we bring the gang back together on a bigger scale. So I think that's something people should be aware of where there can be a lot of different opinions and a lot of different ways, different groups within these two bodies relate to each other. So thank you, Jacob, for explaining that. I know that that's a sensitive one because there are a lot of, a lot of people get hurt when there are splits like this and no matter what tradition you're in. So, so thank you for sharing that. I think moving on from there to, to get to maybe something a bit nicer, or easier is you mentioned the, the realignment Anglicans, uh, ACNA, they're associated with uh, GAFCON. So that's a big acronym. Maybe you could just unpack what that stands for, or at the very least, what, what that represents or is as a body. So GAFCON stands for the Global Anglican Fellowship Conference, I think. Uh, <laughs> that we, that sounds just, good to I, me. I've called it GAFCON for a while. I, I <laughs> Right. Yeah. But um, GAFCON is one of the two sort of major, and GAFCON is still within the wider Anglican communion, which is right. what we would say is the, the international body of Anglicans. GAFCON is sort of a wider 
uh, a sort of a smaller movement within the Anglican communion, mm. um, sort of committed to Orthodox Anglicanism, um, the Jerusalem Declaration, which was made in 2009, which affirms sort of basic tenets of Orthodoxy. Anglicanism, like a number of mainline denominations, has suffered in the past few years from a number of people who, uh, it, it, affirming issues aside, yeah. have renounced their faith um, publicly while retaining ecclesial office. Um, individuals like Bishop Spong, who right. publicly denied the resurrection of Christ and that sort of thing, uh, the virgin birth, basic tenets of Christianity that can be agreed on by anybody, just did, you know, despite denominational divide, things that I'm sure you and I would agree on. Yeah. Things that were renounced. And so the need was seen for something which looks a little bit more like a confession um with this jerusalem declaration so that that's really sort of the origin of gafcon it's mostly centered in the global south um mm. within africa south america um with the acna being the, the strange exception right and may, maybe that that's a place just to again add some more nuance to the picture where when i was learning about anglicanism and getting into that world where that that's my college now and the studies i'm doing it was interesting to me that you would see a group like the ACNA, which split from these two Anglican communion bodies, now spending most of their time with Anglican communion bodies, but in Africa and the global South at large. So again, I, I think the key thing with Anglicanism is while there is a robust history that we can divide out into sections and streams, there is so much wonderful overlap. Well, sometimes messy, sometimes wonderful overlap as people are talking. So it's really not as simple as again, oh, here's them and here's them. They hate each other. There is a lot going on. And I think the other thing to mention there is just, it's amazing to me constantly when looking at the just Christianity as a whole, and this is something people talk about quite a bit. When you, when you imagine the average uh, Christian, people are still thinking like, oh, it's the, the white Baptist in the South kind of thing. But I, I think Anglicanism is a big contributing factor where I think it's a young African woman is the, yes, the a, picture. A 22-year-old Nigerian woman is the average Anglican. Yeah, and, and that that is just mind-blowing. And I think that really helps when people think about what Anglicanism is again, where while it's rooted in this English history and church that people were stemming out from, it's really, really, really a global body. And Africa, I think it's really... I, I'm, I'm excited to see in the future what Africa has in store when it comes to sending out missionaries. And I think Anglicanism is a place where we're seeing that most clearly where they have missionary dioceses in the States and they're sending out people. There's a lot of overlap. It's, and of course, that, that brings a different kind of drama and discussion, but also brings great excitement. So that, that's really part of this conversation as we're thinking about Anglicanism is it's a big world, it's a diverse world, and there's so much more. We're just scratching the surface. So I hope that encourages people. If you're interested, check out those resources down below and just be willing, if you meet an Anglican, to hear what they have to say, find out who they are, and maybe seek out somebody who might have a different view or have a different perspective so that you can learn more. Don't just meet one Anglican and think, oh, that's Anglicanism. Maybe, Jacob, we can move on from there. So we got, we got these three groups and uh, different expressions within these groups. So now I'm going to ask again, the very, very tough question with all these different expressions and uh, the, the Lutheran that I had on had sim similar ways of explaining. It's going to look different everywhere. But I think people, what they want to know is when they meet an Anglican or hear about Anglicanism is what actually happens in the church. You, you mentioned there's some people committed to the prayer book, which 
really outlines what what goes on in terms of what's said at least but you mentioned you'd also get some catholic elements with praise band things going on so it it's not as one-dimensional as we might imagine it so to make this easier uh, why don't you just outline, you, you've been to a number of churches, but you mentioned you're in a more Anglo-Catholic kind of world. So if you could explain to us, maybe starting with an Anglo-Catholic church service, what does that look like? What is said? What goes down? And then we could talk about what might be different in some of the other streams moving from that point out. Of course. So when you go to an Anglican church on Sunday for the main Sunday service, it's usually going to be a service of Holy Communion. Mm. Um, there are a variety of different names for it. Most people call it Mass. But it, for, for the most part in our tradition, that doesn't carry the baggage that it might carry in another tradition saying mass for the Sunday service. Right. Um, but we celebrate the service of Holy Communion every Sunday. Um, you, you, you'd come in, sit in your pew. Um, at some point, there will be a bell that rings and the music will start. Okay. And we have an opening hymn, usually at my church and at the churches around here. Some places, there will be a place for a praise song. Um, but you have an opening hymn, the priest, and maybe some of his, some of the other ministers, if you have a deacon at the church, um, and if you have acolytes, which is sort of a fancy term for, for altar servers, altar boys, right? Mm. Usually a little bit older, who might carry in the cross or carry candles or carry a book. Um, basically, the idea is that they're, they're helpers at the altar. Priest doesn't have eight or nine hands. Um, it's helpful to have somebody else hold things for him. Mm. Um, so he starts off, the priest goes up to the altars. So in, in an Anglican church, the sort of central point is this altar in the middle, a holy table. Um, and he'll go up there and he'll say a prayer asking for purity, right? Asking not, not just for him, but for all of us that we might be worthy to worship God, which is something that I don't think we always think about that not only ought we worship him, we ought to ask for permission to worship him. Right. It's yeah. we're in the presence of the most high every we need to take every step. Um, a, a list of the, the summary of the law. Right. Um, uh, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself is read. We ask we will usually at this point, we'll sing the song of the angels. Right. Um, in Luke, when, you know, the the angels at Christ's birth at Christmas, right? The angels sing the song, glory be to God on high and on earth mm. peace, goodwill towards men. And this is a long ancient Christian hymn. We'll sing it at this point in the service. We'll have a, a prayer sort of summarizing or collecting the, uh, the theme of the day. And then a variety of readings from scripture. So one from the Old Testament, one Psalm, one from the New Testament epistles and one from the gospels. Mm. Um, and then of course the, the, the celebrant, which is what we usually call the priest in this situation because he's celebrating the service. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll give a sermon. We'll confess the Nicene Creed. Um, we'll offer prayers for ourselves, for our neighbors, for those who we need to pray, for our government, for the church. Um, we'll confess our sins, not in the sort of private confessions sense, but in a sort of public corporate confession that we didn't, we, we have, we've fallen short of the grace of God. Right. And then we ask for God's mercy. Um, and then at this point, we celebrate the Holy Communion. So we'll have a prayer. Um, the priest will consecrate bread and wine. So Anglicans, for the most part, believe that, believe in a strong real presence theology of mm. communion, that the bread and wine on the altar, and Anglicans usually do use real wine, 
um, is in a sense, the body and blood of Christ. What sense that is, is up for debate within the Anglican community. Right. But in some real sense, we all confess that that's the case. Hmm. Um, he'll consecrate that, we'll all join in the Our Father. At various points in the service, there'll be a number of hymns that are sung. You can replace these with praise songs in different places, some places use hymns. At this point, we'll usually have a, a communion hymn. People will come up and receive communion at the altar rail. Everybody gets the little wafer or maybe a piece of bread, depending on the on the church. Mm. Um, everybody usually drinks from the common cup. So I know a lot of places, especially in the Protestant tradition, have the little yeah. sort of that, miniature cups. We, we usually don't yeah. do that. We have the sort of goblet-looking thing, um, the chalice, that everybody communes out of. Mm. And that, that takes a little bit of getting used to. It took me a little bit of getting used to when I when I converted. And, yeah. uh, it was sort of strange. But for the most part, it's it's you get used to it. It's it's a little right. odd. Yeah. Really, it, it adds a new meaning to communion because you really do feel like you are partaking of the same cup mm. and the same bread. I've been to a service. Most of the places I, I've been to use the wafers, but I've been to a service where somebody brought in a big loaf of bread that they had baked. Right. And it we had to sing an extra hymn because it took the priest forever he's up there like breaking off pieces of this bread to hand out to everybody <laughs> nice but it really it makes you feel i mean it it adds a new element to the meaning of communion i am really sharing in the same body and the same blood as everybody else here right and, and as the church you're really one loaf that is exactly. the body yeah exactly and that's my favorite part of the service. I, I love receiving communion. It's it's one of the one of the great joys I think of being an Anglican that I I am privileged to be able to receive communion every Sunday. Right. Mm. Um, after that, of course, we sing hymns. We we give thanks to God for having received communion, and the service ends with all the ministers sort of leaving the altar area, going back to the the sacristy or the back room, so to speak, and the service being finished. Right. I guess that's what I would say an average Anglican service looks like on Sunday. You can sing the whole thing if you want. Every part of the service except for the sermon, there is a way to sing it, I'm sure. Wow. Um, most places don't because that's that's a lot. Sometimes <laughs> you just need the spoken word. Right, right. Um, and as, especially in Anglo-Catholic churches, they'll, they'll not only sing it, they'll chant it in this mm. in Gregorian chant, the way that, that Christians have chanted and sung since maybe the 600s, the 500s, earlier than that. Wow. Um, mm. a, a form of chanting, really, that, that probably would have been recognizable to Christ himself right? and the apostles. Of course, it's not, it's not necessary. It's nice, and it has, there are certain times when you want to use it and certain times when you might not want to use it. Um, usually on things like Christmas Eve or Easter, we'll pull all the stops out and do all the the nonsense, the frilly stuff, because we believe really that we ought to offer our best to God. Mm -hmm. We ought to offer everything we can. And if that means doing things slightly strange to our, to our sort of modern sensibilities, that's okay. Right. Most of this stuff is things are things that Christ would have been familiar with mm -hmm. things that if, if you read in the old Testament, sort of the, the descriptions of temple worship, you'll find a lot of common features here. Right. Um, obviously not necessary and they're not, they're not, you know, integral to the faith or even integral to our worship, but they are another way, another layer that we can offer our time and our energy and our effort to, to God. Right. Yeah. So Jacob, that is fantastic and very helpful. And I think 
there, there's so much I could say in response, but I'll try to limit it. But uh, I think the first thing that came to mind at the end there is where you really begin to see that that initial battle within Anglicanism when it came to the Puritans, where you'd have Anglicans who say, this is all great and historical and wonderful, but then you get Puritans with a different philosophy and a philosophy more familiar to myself and my tradition, where we might say, hey, if this isn't New Testament or this isn't contextualized in the culture, maybe it's not so great, but then you would, of course, say, well, we have the Old Testament, we have this history, and why not do it? And so there's disagreements there. We won't get into it now, as I said, but that's helpful to think about where these are living discussions that still play out and are part of where we are today. So that, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, I think a lot of people, at least in my world, listening to this would go, oh, yeah, so that, that that's right. Anglicans are pretty weird, as I thought, and that didn't change after hearing that. Where And, and I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to phrase it like that, but of course, that's an evangelical true. Baptist hearing this, you think, starting with a bell. What, what's going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> ringing the bell. So, Or, of course, uh, you mentioned the acolytes, where the priest doesn't have the seven or eight hands necessary. And the Baptist mind is thinking, why do you need seven or eight hands to say a sermon? Like what, what's <laughs> going on here? But again, that's that's part of the reason we're having this discussion where I think the pe what people should have heard and what I did here, and, and maybe you, you'd have more to say is that there really is a different, different focal point of the service here where the Baptist is thinking church, hey, we got a few songs, we got a few prayers, we got communion maybe once a month and then the main thrust is the preaching of the word the reading of the word and that's something that the pastor does and I actively listen it sounds like for Anglicans a lot more is going on on the other side when it comes to the Lord's Supper or the the Eucharist on that point where you have the different things that are done and of course there's a symbolism there's a history there's a reason but it takes more people because it's more rather than saying stuff, it's actually doing stuff with your hands. You mentioned the ripping up the loaf. And I'd imagine if I were doing that and everyone was waiting and watching, I, I might want another uh, pastor or two or a priest or two around me. Maybe they could help out that kind of thing or a deacon or so. So different philosophy when it comes to we're, we're doing the same stuff in a general sense, but we're, we're talking about different points more than other points where uh, this, it sounds like the sermon you probably wouldn't be getting a 45 minute sermon in that sort of context. So uh, how long would an average sermon be if you're, you're doing that kind of uh, worship service? It depends on where you are in the Anglican world. I, right. I feel bad and I feel for our, our African brethren because mm. they, they do the whole bells and whistles as well as a 45 minute sermon. I, <laughs> right. I, I don't envy that. Yeah. Um, I, I love, I love hearing the word preached, but I, I also like, you know, sleeping until maybe 6.45 on a Sunday morning instead of <laughs> 6. Yeah. Um, usually in, in a North American context, the longest one I've heard is maybe 25 minutes. Okay. Usually it's about 15, 10 to 15. Mm, right. And, and that that's sort of, and again, like, man, I hate to say it like this, but those Africans are amazing. Like with the, like they, they are on fire. They got stamina. <laughs> they, they got stamina. So that's amazing. But that, I think that really indicates uh, what's going on. So at my church, our Lord's Supper celebration, which uh, as you mentioned, we use the little cups and we use the, the, the wafers. And of course, I think there is a discussion there. I would love to see more Baptist discussion on that side of things. But for us, our that whole thing, that would probably take about 15 minutes while the sermon would be 35 minutes at least. 
And it mm -hmm. sounds like there's a reversal going on in the Anglican world where it probably takes longer than 35 minutes to do all that other stuff. But then a 15 minute sermon that that's sort of where you see the balance play out. And of course, there's a theology behind there. There's a history behind there that's worth dialogue and discussion. But I think that's helpful for people to think about as we see traditions doing other things differently, recognize they're doing the same stuff, but with a different theological bend. And so while we could have a conversation, it almost feels like we do have to do a bit of translation work where stuff like acolyte and speaking about the, the common cup, like for a lot of Baptists, I'm sure listening to that, they're like, what is going on? But there <laughs> is there is a discussion that could be had in a brotherly kind of way where we could say, here's why we do this. Here's why I don't think you should do this. Here's why we're okay with doing things differently on some points. But I think it's helpful to just get it out there. And as you mentioned in the Anglican world, even with all that going on, you'll still get a, an evangelical Anglican church out there who's got the Hillsong blasting on the, mm -hmm. on the praise band. So it's, and then of course you got the, uh, and we know some people like this, some really ultra high church kind of guys who are just like, we're going to do all the frills, all the stops. And of course they're coming with the philosophy there. So Jacob, that that's helpful. And maybe a final question on the note of what goes on in Anglican churches is you, you got this huge, like, I, I guess, approach to uh, the worship service where we're going to take the time. It sounds like the average service, even with that shorter sermon might be longer than a normal Baptist service where uh, there, it sounds like there's so much happening and there's a lot to take in, but outside of that uh, intense focus upon uh, I guess the the Lord's Day service we would call it. But what what else is happening in Anglican churches? Are there Bible studies and prayer meetings? And of course, I I know that uh, morning and evening prayer that's a huge part of the Anglican world. But may, maybe you could just share with us what else is happening when it comes to Anglican church family. Well, a lot of times we still center what we do during the week, so to speak, on these worship services so in the morning and evening we'll have morning and evening prayer in most churches mm. and essentially it's it's a set of psalms and readings and prayers that sort of mark the two cornerstones of the or the two capstones of the day right right but in that space you got a lot to fill mm. and the church is certainly alive outside of the worship um every day bible studies at my church we have uh, we regularly eh, we regularly partner with Grace in downtown Fort Worth, which is a homeless shelter. Mm. Um, sort of having Bible studies, like you said, prayer meetings. We have lots of devotional societies, is what we usually call them in the Anglican world. But it's really just our sort of pretentious code for prayer groups. That's what it is. Uh, nice. It's people who get together and they study and they pray. Mm. There's nothing. I mean insofar as separate from the the worship side of things we're fairly similar to most other protestant churches in that regard right. lots of bible studies lots of youth group mm. every every sunday we have two sunday services uh, we have the early service and the late service and in between that we've got sunday school not just for kids but for all ages we've got adult christian education youth christian education of course the all important what we joke about is the eighth sacrament of the church coffee hour uh, um, of course the the whole nine yards right so I, we've we've certainly got just about everything that that most Protestant churches would have outside of our worship. Outside. Mm. And and I, I have to comment there. I heard Lutheran make the same joke, but they called it the third <laughs> sacrament of the church. So that, that's probably another point that we should have mentioned where within Anglicanism, there are more sacraments, it sounds like. So we're, we're sort of jumbled up here. So if you could just briefly highlight 
Baptists, we'll talk about two ordinances. And sometimes the super historical guys will call them two sacraments. That's fine language in the Baptist tradition. But you said you reference seven sacraments. And that, that sounds like another thing you perhaps in the conservative Reformation, you held on to some of those uh, Roman Catholic or medieval kind of understandings of sacraments. So and any comment on the, the sacraments there? So there, we would affirm that there are two real, complete, what we would call dominical or Lord-ordained, right, sacraments. Right. Okay. And that is baptism and communion. Mm. Um, the Anglican Church does practice infant baptism. Um, and depending on who you ask, we also practice infant communion. But that's, that's a debate that's currently raging right now. Um, that I don't want to touch with the 10-foot pole. Yeah, don't but, worry about that. <laughs> um, there are five other other rites commonly called sacraments is what our confession would, would say. Um, mm. The 39 Articles calls five, five rites commonly called sacraments. Um, and they are confession, um, unction, which is anointing of the sick, right. ordination, um, marriage, and confirmation. Mm. And these five other sacraments, historically, they were considered sacraments. In the Roman Catholic Church, they are. In the Orthodox Church, they are. In ours, they're sort of quasi-sacraments. Mm. In a sense, they act like sacraments, right? A sacrament in our tradition being defined as, and this is maybe getting too much into the nitty-gritty, but a sacrament in our tradition is the outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Right. Um, and all of these things fit that definition but they aren't ordained by God. God mm. didn't say you have to be confirmed in order to be saved. He commanded us two things. He said that we ought to get baptized, that we ought to feed on his body and blood. Right. Um, and that's something that we all affirm. Mm. So the, the number of sacraments in Anglicanism differs depending on who you ask. I would say I'm a fairly middle of the road guy. So I usually say there's two sacraments and five things commonly called sacraments. Right. If you were to ask an evangelical Anglican, they would say two. If you were to ask an Anglo-Catholic, they'd say seven. I know some guys who would say three um, okay. and include confession in there because of the sort of the handing over the, of the keys. But right. it's really, most people affirm something like two plus five, roughly. Gotcha. So, and, and again, there, there's so much more we could get into with the theology and different people holding different things. But I hope that again, encourages people, if you're interested, you got to do some reading up on this. Don't, again, just think to your head, oh, they just do what Roman Catholics do. And with a Protestant bent, there's a lot going on there. And there's so much theological reflection and historical study building into these things. So Jacob, we taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate that. And you've explained so much. I think the again, the least that we could take away from this, whatever background we're coming from is don't be satisfied with what you just imagine a certain tradition is like, or don't be just satisfied. Oh, you see one church did something like that and you didn't like it. And that's wild and crazy. So the whole thing has to be the same exact way with every tradition, with every denomination, whether we like it or not, frankly, there are different ways of doing things, different streams within different uh, spectrums that we can place people on. But at the end of the day, they come together around something. It sounds like with Anglicans, it's really taking in the central role of the Book of Common Prayer, appreciating how that plays out in liturgy. And that would be perhaps the central thrust there. I think with each tradition we've gone through, there's been something that they really grasped and really hold firm for Anglicans it sounds like common prayer and liturgy is a fundamental critical thing for Lutherans it was talking about uh, the objectivity of grace was something they were well at least Connor really 
grabbed onto with uh, the Dutch Reformed, of course, Covenant Theology, Confessions, Pentecostal, the spiritual gifts, and baptism with the Holy Spirit. So with each one, it sounds like there's something they grasp on, and that's probably places where we can have the open and honest dialogue, because at the end of the day, at least for Protestant traditions, we're all looking to scripture and trying to faithfully follow it to the best of our ability. And that plays out differently. So let's keep talking, keep the conversations going. And Jacob, I'm going to volunteer services. If people have questions, put them down below in the YouTube comments. I will make sure that even if Jacob doesn't reply, that I will have a conversation and then let you know what he says so that we can really learn more and hopefully grow together and just continue to live out our calling as brothers and sisters to encourage each other to sharpen each other and do all those wonderful things. But Jacob, that we're coming to the end and I want to do what I did with you last time and I tried to do with everyone every time is now give you an opportunity to share maybe one reflection or encouragement that could be anything you have on your mind just to leave my audience with now. I'm often struck every time I go to a Baptist church about the quality of preaching compared mm. to our own tradition. And there's a quote, and I forget who said it, and it's been said, I mean, I'm sure it's been reposted on Facebook a million and a half times, but um, I, you know, would that, that God's church have the preaching of a Baptist, the worship of an Anglican, the commitment to theology of a Lutheran, and the, uh, the faithfulness of a Calvinist. Mm. That's my thought. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that is so fantastic. And Jacob, I think that really highlights the spirit of these dialogues right now, where we can learn from each other. We don't have to abandon our convictions to learn from each other and to grow together. So Jacob, thank you for bringing that to our minds. And hopefully we can continue learning together. Jacob, again, thank you so, so much. People, check out the information down in the description down below if you're interested in anything we said. And if you have questions, please, especially the hard ones. Jacob is a smart guy. He can take it, but Thank leave you. those here. But that's it for now. Jacob, thanks again, everyone else. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you next time on Christian's Colloquy. Take care, everyone. <laughs>